What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. At 9 p.m. on October 31st, 1984, Doreen Erbert opened her front door to a man standing on her doorstep with a wolf mask covering his face. Being Halloween night, a person in a mask on her doorstep wasn't all that strange though Doreen thought it odd that the man was alone with no costumed children accompanying him. She wasn't immediately frightened by what she saw, but unbeknownst to her, she had more than one reason to be afraid. At nine months pregnant and with her four-year-old at her side, she realized the man inside the mask was none other than her ex-husband, and he had much more than trick-or-treating on his mind that night. This is Monsters. William Michael Dennis was born in 1950 in San Jose, California to middle-class parents. He was known as Mike to his friends, though there weren't many people in that group due to his social awkwardness and quiet nature. He also struggled to make friends due to suffering from significant hearing loss for which he had to wear a hearing aid. In those days, the devices were bulky and he had to carry a small box in his pocket in order to make the hearing aid work. The hearing loss also delayed Mike's speech and caused him to talk with a stutter. For this reason, he lacked confidence and had a limited ability to make new friends. Despite his parents' encouragement and support, he was always known as a timid and discontent child. As he developed into his teen years, Mike's lack of conversational experience set him even further apart from his peers who were starting to talk to girls and entering into relationships. During this time, he became even more sulky and prone to angry outbursts. While some put it down to typical teenage moodiness, his parents knew there was a deeper reason behind his irritability and they suspected he might have depression. At that time, though, there weren't many services available for mental health, especially for angsty teens. Instead, his parents were told he would grow out of it once he passed the awkward teenage years. It was clear that Mike wasn't going to get any better, and when he finished school, his isolation and social awkwardness compounded. While others were heading off to college and dating, Mike preferred to spend his time at home or work. He managed to secure a job as a sprayer at the Lockheed factory, where he was considered reliable and attentive, though there was nothing exceptional about his performance. In 1975, Mike finally seemed to find his feet. Through his work, he met Doreen Ray Hitchens. Doreen was kind and patient with Mike and didn't seem bothered by his stutter or his lack of experience with women. They began to see each other more often, and friends would comment that Doreen's bright and caring nature helped to bring Mike out of his shell. Doreen Ray Hitchens was born on November 29, 1952 in Santa Clara, California as the fourth of five children. 
She was raised in a stable and loving home where she enjoyed camping, fishing, and exploring the outdoors with her family. Doreen was always known as caring and generous, and she had a positive personality that seemed to rub off on everyone around her. It was her passionate nature that led her to pursue a career in the medical field so she could help others with her work. She enrolled to study physical therapy, and when she secured her first job, she met Mike. While she considered Mike a bit standoffish and shy at first, it didn't take long for her enthusiasm to rub off on him. His depression seemed to lift when they were together and he adored her, making her feel like the center of his world. His parents breathed a sigh of relief as Mike finally seemed to have found happiness. Just weeks after meeting Doreen, he began to tell his family that she was the one. He was eager to take their relationship to the next level and he asked Doreen to marry him. In 1975, they were married in a small ceremony close to where they both lived. One year later, Doreen gave birth to their first child, a boy named Paul. Mike was devoted to being a good dad, and he set out to prove everyone wrong who had ever doubted him or mocked his disability. He was hands-on with Paul, changing diapers and in time teaching him how to walk and talk. Mike continued to work at the factory to support his small family, but the toll of mothering a child and trying to keep Mike in a positive headspace began to wear on Doreen. Doreen had thought Mike's depression would lift when they had been together for a while and he would become more positive and outgoing. Where once she hadn't minded being upbeat enough for both of them, now she had Paul to take care of and she wished Mike would get it together and support her emotionally. But since Paul had been born, Mike wanted to stay home more and Doreen's once active and vibrant social life had all but ended. With the stress of long, sleepless nights and a repetitive cycle of looking after Paul and Mike, Doreen decided she would be happier if they parented separately. That night, when Mike returned home from work, Doreen told him she wanted to separate. Mike was devastated, and he begged Doreen to reconsider. He made promises to change and be a better partner, but Doreen's mind was made up. In 1977, one year after Paul was born, she filed for divorce. She was given full custody of Paul, but she assured Mike he would always be able to visit and that she wanted them to get along for the sake of their son. Mike agreed to the arrangement, hoping that it would appease Doreen, and that if he showed her how good of a father he could be, that maybe she would change her mind about the divorce. He moved into a house close to Doreen's and he visited Paul often. He wanted to prove to Doreen that he had changed and so he maintained a positive and cheerful attitude during the visits. But when his son was out of sight, he made nasty comments about the divorce and nagged at Doreen to take him back. By now, Mike's depression had returned in full force. It was made all the worse by the fact that Doreen was clearly excited and upbeat about her life after the divorce. She had reconnected with friends and had regained her cheerful disposition. She seemed to be thriving without Mike, and he hated her for it. With each new visit to his son, his resentment toward his ex-wife grew. In 1978, Doreen was on her way home from work when her car broke down. She pulled over to the side of the road, and within minutes, a man driving by stopped to help her with her vehicle. The man was Charles Herbert, and as he set to work trying to fix up her car, Doreen couldn't help but notice his cheery personality and easy manner. Charles joked with her as he tinkered about under the hood of her car, and once he had found a way to get her back on the road, he asked her if she would consider having dinner with him later that week. 
Doreen acted coy as she agreed to the date, but in the privacy of her own vehicle, she was quietly excited about the idea of getting to know Charles more. At the date, Doreen was impressed by Charles's seemingly stable life. He ran a successful carpeting business and owned his own home, and while she might have worried his cheerful personality was a put-on to impress her, over their next few dates he continued to be enthusiastic and bubbly. Doreen couldn't help but notice the contrast between the chatty Charles and her moody ex-husband Mike. Soon after their fortuitous roadside meeting, Charles and Doreen became a couple. Within the year, they were married and in 1979, Doreen gave birth to their first child, Deanna, a little sister for three-year-old Paul. While she initially stayed home after Deanna was born, when it came time to return to work, Doreen and Charles agreed it would be better for them as a family if she left her physical therapist job and came to work in the carpet business. The receptionist role would mean more flexibility in work hours, which better suited Deanna and Paul's childcare arrangements. Mike continued to visit Paul regularly on weekends, taking him on outings or playing with him in Charles and Doreen's backyard. He still wanted Doreen back, but when Deanna was born, he finally realized that his ex-wife had well and truly moved on. Rather than finding some peace in this realization, it further enraged him. Beneath the quiet and calm exterior, he was seething. Charles was living the life he was meant to have with Doreen, almost like the man had stepped into his shoes and stolen his family right from underneath him. Mike already despised Doreen, but now he hated Charles and Deanna too. Little did they know, things were about to get infinitely worse for all of them. On a warm and sunny day in February 1980, Doreen was completing her regular household chores while Deanna slept and Paul kept himself entertained in the backyard. Intermittently, Doreen would peer out the window to where Paul was playing or call out his name as she worked. Paul was a typically curious four-year-old who loved to get his hands dirty in the garden or make forts and hideouts in the hedges around the yard. He especially loved to play hide-and-seek, so Doreen wasn't immediately concerned when he didn't answer back to her most recent call, but she went looking for him nonetheless. Except she couldn't find him, not in any of his usual hiding places and not even when she used her sternest voice to demand an answer. She became increasingly frantic as she searched and yelled out his name, but only silence answered her. There was only one place left to look and Doreen's stomach was in her throat as she approached the fence. The fence was higher than usual because it surrounded the family swimming pool. Doreen knew Paul couldn't climb over the fence, nor could he reach the latch on the gate. But to her immense horror, she could see a tiny, Paul-sized hole had been made in the side of the barrier. She sprinted towards the pool and flung open the gate, but she was too late. Her beautiful boy floated lifelessly, face down on the surface of the water. She wrenched him from the pool and tried to breathe life back into his small body, but to no avail. He was transported to the hospital where he was placed on life support. Three days later, life support was turned off and Paul passed away peacefully surrounded by his loving mother and father, just four weeks short of his fourth birthday. Doreen and Mike were equally devastated. Doreen was overwhelmed with feelings of guilt and despair. The what-ifs ran through her mind endlessly. What if I had been out there one minute earlier? What if I had kept a better eye on him? What if, what if, what if? While denial and anger are well-known aspects of grief, Mike's devastation was clouded by his well-established hatred of Doreen and Charles. 
From the very first moment he had been made aware of his son's drowning, he blamed Doreen for Paul's death. He was consumed by rage and told anyone who would listen that Doreen and Charles had conspired to kill Paul so that they could cut Mike out of their lives. He claimed they hated him and this was their chance to move on without him. This is the sign of a true narcissist, believing that the mother of his child would kill that child just so she didn't have to deal with her ex-husband. As someone who started this show talking about cases of filicide, it's not unheard of for parents to kill a child just to spite the other parents. But those are usually in an effort to hurt the other parent, not to get them out of their lives. Plus, Doreen had never showed any signs that she would be capable of killing her child over something so trivial. The idea was the product of Mike's imagination, based on his own self-importance. Mike's words were so hateful on top of the pain they were all experiencing that Doreen could barely look at him in the eyes, even at their son's funeral. But Mike wouldn't let up. In 1981, 12 months after Paul's death, Mike filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Doreen and Charles. The case went to trial in 1982 and the jury ruled in favor of the couple, stating that Paul's death was a tragic accident, not anything more sinister as Mike had implied. At the conclusion of the trial, Doreen told Mike in no uncertain terms that he was never to come to her house again or contact her for any reason. After Paul's death, Mike's life took a downward spiral and he lost all sense of purpose. He began to miss work and became even more reclusive. With the shame and despair of the failed lawsuit, his grief morphed into bitter resentment. His colleagues couldn't stand to be around him, and with all the time he had taken off work to face his legal battles, his employer decided he wasn't pulling his weight anymore. They advised him he was no longer reliable enough to work as a technician and that if he wanted to stay with the company, he needed to change to a lower-paid position. With little choice in the matter, he grudgingly agreed to their offer. Over the coming months, he became more and more isolated and hostile. He truly believed his ex-wife had murdered his son and a lingering bitterness toward her began to eat away at him. In 1984, as the grief of Paul's death began to lift, Doreen found out she was pregnant again. Deanna was four years old and Doreen had been desperate for another child to fill the gaping hole she felt at losing her only son. She knew that no child could ever replace Paul, but she hoped that bringing new life into the world would help to mend some of her heartbreak. She had had two miscarriages since Paul passed away, so when this pregnancy progressed past the first trimester, she began to excitedly share the news with family and friends. Charles was ecstatic at the prospect of another child, and he was hopeful that it would help to return some light and cheer to his grieving wife. He was doubly excited when they found out the child was going to be a boy, and he began to envision the adventures they would have together as his son grew. The baby was due to be born just after Halloween. Mike lived just minutes away from Doreen and Charles's house, and as it usually does in a small community, word of Doreen's pregnancy quickly made its way to Mike. When he found out the baby was going to be a boy, he flew into a fit of rage. It was all Doreen's fault. She had left him for no good reason, then intentionally drowned the one thing that tied them together, and now she was trying to replace Paul with another boy that she was going to keep all to herself. Over the coming weeks, Mike watched Doreen from afar as her belly began to show signs of pregnancy. Where once he was the one to rub her feet and offer comfort for her aching body, 
Now he could only observe while well-wishers touched her tummy and offered her congratulations. Where once he was the excited father, preparing for a son whom he would take camping and fishing, now he was relegated to the role of an unwelcome stranger. No, Mike wouldn't have it. If he couldn't have his son back in his arms, then he wasn't about to allow Doreen to have a replacement child in hers. Doreen was just days away from giving birth on the night of Halloween 1984. She couldn't face the prospect of a long walk around the neighborhood trick-or-treating with Deanna. Charles agreed it would be best if she stayed home and put her feet up while he took their very excited daughter out in her special costume. He made sure to miss the houses closest to their home so Doreen could take Deanna to the last couple if she was up for it when they returned. Deanna was almost five years old, and this was her first Halloween when she really knew what was going on. She'd spent weeks working on her costume with Doreen, and she'd hardly slept the night before due to her excitement for trick-or-treating for the first time. When they returned home that evening, Deanna was desperate to tell her mother all about her candy loot and to make sure they didn't miss out on the last few houses on the street. Doreen happily obliged as her daughter led her up the paths of the few remaining homes. She stood back while Deanna knocked on the doors and collected her treats before skipping back and showing Doreen what she had been given. When they finished up, they returned to the house where Charles was looking forward to putting Deanna to bed so he could join his wife on the couch. But first, he wanted to drop into the local liquor store to pick up a bottle of wine. He left through the front door to the sounds of his wife and daughter's giggles of delight. As he closed the door behind him, he called out to Doreen to remember to lock it, though he reminded her that he wouldn't take long. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. At 9 p.m., there was a sharp knock on the door. Doreen looked at her watch and thought it was a bit late for trick-or-treaters, but Deanna begged her to open the door. She wanted to see the costumes and offer some candy to the children waiting outside. Doreen opened the door while Deanna stood at her side, but instead of a group of children asking for candy, there was just one person leaning against the railing on the front porch of their home. It was clearly an adult and the person's head was covered in a dark, rubbery wolf mask. In a moment of horror, Doreen's face contorted with the realization of who it was she was staring at. She whispered firmly for Michael to leave, not wanting to frighten Deanna who had begun to cling to her side. Through the mask came five muffled words, quote, I'm going to kill you. Doreen screamed at Deanna to hide behind the couch. In the blink of an eye, the intruder pulled a long machete from behind his back, leapt towards Doreen, and began to wildly stab at her right there in the doorway of her own home. Deanna had never heard her mother scream, and she was panicked to the very core. She ran back into the house, doing her best to stay quiet and hidden from the scary wolf. She sobbed silently into her blanket and tried not to make any noise while she crouched behind the sofa. Moments later, Charles arrived home and immediately noticed that his front door was unlocked. It was unlike Doreen to forget to lock the door, especially given his reminder before he left. He pushed the door open and was met with a truly horrific scene. 
Doreen was laying just inside the entrance of their family home. Her face was unrecognizable due to the repeated strikes she had sustained from the large blade. She was completely surrounded by blood that had made its way up every surface in the room. From the couch to the ceiling and the curtains, he raced to her side and attempted to hold her hand, but it was completely severed from her body. He tried to stop the bleeding from her arm, but moving her only seemed to make more blood flow from the deep cuts in her stomach and neck. But it was not the condition of Doreen which would serve to traumatize Charles for the rest of his days. Just a few feet away from her brutalized body lay what remained of their unborn son. The boy had been violently cut from the warmth and safety of his mother's womb. He too had been viciously attacked with the machete, Parts of his tiny body lay disconnected from the rest. He had never even had a chance to take a breath. As he scrambled to find his feet amongst his horror, Charles slipped and fell in the blood. He knew he needed to call for help, but he couldn't seem to find his feet as his eyes and mind adjusted to the terror that was painted before him. Finally, he reached for the phone and tried to dial 911, but the call wouldn't connect and he ended up calling the fire department and a neighbor. In a moment of clarity, his mind flashed to a picture of Deanna. Charles frantically began to search the house for her. He called her name, at first in a whisper and then in a panicked scream. Had the person who killed Doreen taken Deanna? Was she dead? He knew he wouldn't survive losing her too, but out of the darkness came a meek whisper. He was so quiet Charles thought he must have misheard. He called out to Deanna again, and this time he noticed a tiny hand creep around the edge of the couch. Shocked and frightened eyes followed the fingers and soon Deanna had fully emerged from her hiding spot. He swept her up into his arms and covered her eyes as he tried to shelter her from the scene of the murder of her mother and unborn brother. Charles slumped against the wall with his daughter wrapped in his arms while he continued to try to stop Doreen's bleeding. When the police arrived, they had no idea of the scene they were walking into. Charles emerged from the home carrying Deanna. He was covered in blood from head to toe, and his eyes were wide with emotion the officers couldn't place. As the police approached Charles, they could smell alcohol on his breath, and they were immediately concerned for the child in his arms. They convinced him to let Deanna go, but the moment she left his arms, he flew into a fit of hysteria, so an officer cuffed him and put him in the back of a patrol car while a neighbor consoled the child. Meanwhile, two officers cautiously approached the front of the home. Just outside the door, they noticed a discarded rubber wolf mask. With its exaggerated teeth, bulging eyes, and stuck-out tongue, the mask seemed totally out of place and completely normal for Halloween night. But the silence of the home and the eeriness of the scene made their breaths quicken in their chests. It was only when they saw the butchered remains of Doreen and her unborn child that they realized what they were there for. Miraculously, or not, depending on how you look at it, an officer checked Doreen for signs of life and found that she still had a pulse. She was placed into the back of an ambulance, but sadly she passed away on the short trip to the hospital. She was 31 years old. Investigators sprang into action. A brutal killer was on the loose and there was no time to waste in catching the person responsible. A trail of blood led from the threshold of the home down the front path and all the way to the end of the block, where it suddenly stopped at the edge of the sidewalk. Officers assumed the killer had gotten into a vehicle at this point. Given that Charles was completely covered in blood, 
Investigators detained him for questioning while officers visited neighbors to understand if there were any eyewitnesses to the horrible attack. Word had spread quickly about the Halloween night horrors at the Herbert house and neighbors were only too eager to share their version of events. But it wasn't Charles they pointed to. It was Mike. Given his long history with Doreen and his widely known hatred of the couple, especially since Paul's death, it seemed much more likely that Mike was involved than Charles, whom neighbors had seen trick-or-treating with his daughter that same evening. Officers quickly wrapped up their questioning and released Charles so they could rush to Mike's house, which was just two miles from the scene of the murder. Investigators knocked on the door, but there was no answer. They could hear the sound of running water coming from within the home and they immediately considered the possibility that Mike was cleaning up evidence from the crime. So they knocked again, louder this time, but there was still no answer. It was only when they asked the police dispatch to make a phone call to Mike to tell him that they were at his home that he answered the door, dressed in only a dressing gown. The chief investigator took the lead and informed Mike of his wife's murder, watching closely to observe the man's reaction. But there really wasn't one. No sign of shock or dismay at the news. Mike simply asked, quote, You're kidding. The officers said they needed to question him about his movements that night, which Mike politely agreed to, and he invited them into his home. They noticed a bandage on his right wrist, through which blood had seeped. When they questioned him about it, Mike explained it was a cut he had gotten a few days earlier when he was messing around with a knife. Mike stated he had nothing to hide. The investigator seized the opportunity to ask if they could look around his home, and Mike agreed. Mike showed them around, starting in his bedroom where he said he would show them his ID as requested. But while they were in his room, Mike's eyes kept darting toward his headboard. The officer reached down behind the bed and found a loaded gun. On top of the bed was a pair of bloody jeans, and throughout the home they found a trail of blood drops, including on Mike's car keys and leading toward the washing machine. Mike was arrested on the spot, and his house was soon filled with forensic investigators. During the examination of his home, technicians found blood on his driveway, inside his kitchen, and in the garage. In his vehicle, there was blood on the steering column, the ignition, the seats, the driver's side floor mat, and the radio knobs. Because you want to make sure you have the right post-murder and music on in the car. But despite the seemingly overwhelming signs of his involvement in the gruesome murder of Doreen and her unborn child, incomprehensibly, Mike was released after 48 hours when investigators announced they didn't have enough evidence to hold him. But they still believed that Mike was involved, probably because there was a mountain of evidence that showed he was, and so they got a warrant to do another, more thorough search of his home. This time, they found a hardware store receipt for the purchase of an 18-inch long machete. In his garage, they found two handmade coffins, one large and one smaller. Next to the coffins were two body bags, anchors, heavy weights, and a map of the San Francisco Bay. How they missed this on their first search is anyone's guess. It seems like two coffins would be hard to miss, but what do I know? Investigators also took this time to go through photos of Mike's past. This would lead them to the discovery of a picture of Mike from Halloween the year prior, where he was dressed up wearing what? You guessed it, a wolf mask. Mike was rearrested on November 5th and charged with first-degree murder. The evidence which sealed the arrest was a match between Mike's blood and blood found at the scene. 
Evidently, Doreen had fought to the bitter end in an effort to protect Deanna and her unborn son. She had managed to inflict some damage upon Mike as well as the cut he had previously attempted to explain to the police. Mike maintained his innocence and pleaded not guilty to the charges brought against him. He was only on the stand that Mike admitted that he had committed the murders, but explained that they were the result of mental illness and were not premeditated or deliberate. His defense argued that Mike's long history of depression, which stemmed from his childhood issues with hearing loss and stuttering, was the true cause of his actions. They shared health records of a genuine suicide attempt when he was younger as well as an eating disorder that developed in his teen years. As an adult, his condition had worsened due to the separation from Doreen which had caused his depression to spiral, and when Paul died the impact on his mental health was catastrophic. Since then, he had been unable to work, socialize, or see any way through his depression, and when Doreen had remarried and started a new family, he had been unable to cope. In court, he claimed that he was the only one who seemed sad about Paul's death. He also claimed that he knew Doreen was culpable for the drowning because she had refused to effectively fence the pool even though her dog had drowned in the same pool a few months before Paul. But in his most chilling testimony, he recalled the brutal attack on Doreen, taking the jury through a stab-by-stab -stab recollection of the assault. He also claimed that he didn't even know Doreen was pregnant until he started to stab her, and that had he known, he never would have hurt her. He denied any responsibility for the injuries to the unborn child. So he couldn't tell that Doreen was nine months pregnant and the baby just jumped out of her body and cut itself up. Right. When it came time to refute Mike's claims, photos were shown to the court of a very visibly pregnant Doreen. At the time of her murder, she was just days away from delivery and there was no mistaking her condition even to those who didn't know her. The medical examiner testified that Doreen's cause of death was severe chopping wounds that resulted in exsanguination or severe blood loss and that these wounds would have been inflicted by a heavy bladed weapon. Doreen suffered many cuts to the back and sides of her head, with some cuts penetrating her skull. The wounds on the right side of her head were particularly brutal, some fractured the skull and one penetrated two inches into the brain. Her left hand was severed above the wrist. This hand was found near the baby's body in the living room. Her back and shoulders received severe wounds that penetrated bone. Her right breast had been cut three times and stabbed. Her legs and thighs sustained chopping wounds resulting in gaping cuts and a broken femur. Her abdomen had a nine-inch gaping wound. She had also suffered many other cuts while her unborn baby was still inside of her. Her stomach and large bowel were cut open and her uterine wall and placenta also had cuts in it. The umbilical cord was cut near where it had been attached to the baby. The baby was separated from Doreen's body due to her abdominal wounds. The baby had also suffered severe wounds. He had a cut on his head that penetrated into the bone. His left shoulder blade was cut through. His right thigh area, including the penis, scrotum, and perineum were cut and his left leg was severed below the knee. The medical examiner also stated he had a large, five-inch wound cut through half of his body. This wound extended from his upper right abdomen through his left chest to his left armpit, cutting through the shoulder blade, 
the second thoracic vertebrae, the liver, and one lung, then transecting the heart. This wound stopped his heart and circulation. Examination of his lungs demonstrated that they had never expanded and there was no air in them. He never breathed or lived independently of Doreen. The injuries to Doreen and her son prevented him from ever breathing. I want to take a moment to speak to anyone who wants to leave a comment comparing this scene to an abortion. These two people wanted to have this child. They were at the end of the pregnancy, ready to welcome their new son into their lives. He was horrifically murdered, not to mention Doreen in the process, and out of respect to the victims in their family, you should not be comparing this to an abortion. No, comparing this to someone choosing to have an abortion is extremely insulting. Shitting on the memories of these victims in order to make a political statement does nothing but make you an asshole. Thanks. A psychiatrist who examined Mike in the wake of the murders testified that the cause of Mike's actions was a need for revenge against her after the death of Paul on her watch. Mike had become fixated on murdering Doreen after he wrongly believed she had killed her son to remove him from her life. The jury was shown pictures of the wolf mask that Mike had worn during the attack. Chillingly, he had removed the mask while he cut up Doreen so that she would see him. He was quoted as saying that he wanted her to know who was doing this to her. They were also shown the two coffins from Mike's garage which he confessed were for Charles and Doreen. He had planned to kidnap the couple and put them in the coffins before dumping them in the San Francisco Bay. He wanted them to die by drowning, just like his son had. Deanna was called to testify in the trial. By then she was eight years old, and she recalled in disturbing detail how her mother had screamed at her to hide when she realized what was going to happen to her. She said, quote, Mommy told me to get behind the couch, so I did. Witnesses testified to seeing a man in a wolf mask outside Doreen's home in the hours before the attack, refuting any claim of it being a spur-of-the-moment decision by Mike. On August 16, 1988, four years after the murder, William Michael Dennis was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Doreen and second-degree murder of her unborn son. Mike was sentenced to death and is currently on death row in San Quentin State Prison. No inmates have been executed in California since 2006 and he will likely die in prison. Mike has appealed his conviction numerous times over the years, stating he should have been charged with manslaughter and not murder. He continues to claim that grief over his separation and his son's death is what led him to kill his ex-wife and there was no premeditation involved. He stated, quote, I want a new trial. If people knew what I'd been through, the verdict would have been different. I know I'll get my case overturned eventually, but if I had a choice between dying tomorrow or spending 30 more years in prison, I would pick death tomorrow. All of his appeals have been unsuccessful. In 2007, Doreen's father died. Prior to his death, he stated that Doreen's murder had ruined his life and that if he ever saw Mike Dennis outside of prison, he would kill him, a sentiment echoed by her mother. Charles and Deanna say that for their own peace of mind, they have forgiven Mike, stating, quote, I want him to know we survived and we're making it. He hasn't conquered us. In memory of Doreen, they said, quote, when she smiled and laughed, you couldn't help not loving her. She was always giving. William Michael Dennis may have suffered from depression, but he allowed that depression to manifest into hatred. 
That hatred made him believe he had the right to kill people. He believed that other people deserved to die because he was unhappy. That's the belief of a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.